you would, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to the book of Joshua. I'm sorry, that was, that was a long time ago. Judges, uh, chapter, uh, chapters 2 and 3. Uh, this is actually, as we open up, this is one of my favorite passages to preach to middle school boys. But as I started studying this text, realizing like I was excited to preach this, and then I excited, like, wait a second, there's more than middle school boys in the room. And so this might not be as fun as I thought it was. And uh, it's, it's, I've done it already once, and I can tell you it's not. If you were all middle school boys, this would be more fun. Um, you know, we open, we open up the Bible to the book of Judges, and we look at it, and what we realize, and the, the more you read, the deeper you go in the book of Judges, you're going to realize, like, this, this is jacked up. This, some of this is strange. Some of this is weird. This doesn't seem godly. This doesn't, this doesn't seem like this should be something of, of, of the Lord. Today, we're going to read a story about Ehud, and you read this story about Ehud, and you're like, this is just a weird story. And here a king dies, and when I, when, I, when I teach this to middle school boys, they're like, yeah, right? It seems weird to read something in the Bible and, and, and see somebody die and go, yeah. But I would tell you, I, I, think, I think there are actually times in our life where someone dies, and we're kind of like, yeah. I remember May 1st, 2011. Anybody know what happened May 1st, 2011? Osama bin Laden was killed. It was actually May 2nd where he was. It was May 1st where we were because it happened late at night. I remember I was sitting on, on my couch. I was on Twitter. And I remember seeing that, that something popped up that Osama bin Laden had been killed. And so I went to bed that night and the next morning we woke up. And you know what people were doing? They were celebrating the death of a terrorist. That seems strange, right? But, but in the moment, people were doing it. Uh, imagine when Hitler was killed, right? Do you, do you think when Hitler was killed that people, like, in fact, did not celebrate? And absolutely, they, they did. And so there's, there's a part that we have to, we have to read. Like, we, 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 I say we, I think a lot of people read the Old Testament. They start in the Old Testament reading the Bible, and they quickly judge God. And they judge the Old Testament and go, how could a good God do that? But in the way that we compartmentalize in our mind when something like an Osama bin Laden is, is killed, and we, we look back and we remember what happened on 9-11-2001. We look at what happened when the Twin Towers fell. And we realize this is God's, uh, this is God's righteous judgment hand. It's being, being fulfilled through a government, but this is justice. This is justice, and, and, and he, would have, he would have to die thousands of more deaths for it to be, to feel the com, 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 complete justice to us, right? And so, um, we open up the book of Judges, and we begin to read, and we see how it's just messed up. It's just jacked up, and we judge the Bible in a different way. Now, the truth is, we, we, we can't judge the Bible. We ought not judge the Bible. God is the only righteous and good judge. We should come to the Bible humbly. Looking at the, the Bible as God's word and, and God's wisdom. We should look over the Bible and we should see God's kindness. Here's the big truth that I want us to walk away with today. 
And it's this, that when we sin, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. We, we read the book of, book of Judges, and we see the things that the Israelites go through. We see the things that they do. We have to realize that anything that happens to them that causes them to repent and turn back to God is, in fact, his kindness. Let's go ahead in Judges chapter 2. We're going to go to verse 11. We read some of this last week, but I just want to get us caught up and kind of back on track, remembering where we are. Joshua has died. There's now not a leader of Israel. They have come into the promised land. They've taken the promised land. But where God spoke clearly, they did not obey courageously. And they failed to do all that God had commanded them to do. And so now they're beginning to pay the price for that. So their disobedience is going to lead to disaster. So verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, those false gods. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and they served the Bells and the Ashtoreth. Both just carven, graven, image, false gods. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies. So that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Remember, all of this was, was said by Joshua to them. If you go and do these things, this is what's going to happen to you. And, and they said, oh, by no means would we ever do that. And Joshua goes, oh, yeah, you will, but for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Oh, no, we won't. We won't do it. And here we are, and they've done it. And they're in terrible distress. The very, their very actions have led them to disaster, and in the disaster, they are distressed. So verse 16, And the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, because this People have transgressed my covenant that I commanded. Their fathers have not obeyed my voice. I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the ways of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So here's the big idea that I would take away is that our cycles of sin turn into downward spirals of slavery. Our cycles of sin turn into downward spirals of slavery. What we just read in this text 
is what we actually see all of Israel's history. We see Israel, it literally means struggles with God. And throughout their history, there's a cycle that they do over and over and over. Hence, it's a cycle. Israel serves the Lord. Israel falls into sin and idolatry. Israel is slaved. Israel cries out to the Lord. God raises up a judge. Israel is delivered. And Israel serves the Lord again. And then Israel falls into sin. And the cycle just continues. Now, there's one thing. When we look at the book of Judges, there's one piece of this cycle that actually gets skipped by the time we get to the end. By the time we get to the end, what you're going to see is that Israel stops crying out to the Lord. But the Lord yet is still merciful. We're going to see that the Lord is, is still merciful even when they stop crying out because he loves them. Look at verse 18 and 19. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with them. With the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. He was moved to pity. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were corrupt, more corrupt than their fathers. So look at that word. They were more corrupt. It, it, it began to go, go down, and that's why the... the the point that I make here is that our cycles of sin turn into downward spirals of slavery. So Israel goes, it's this cycle that they're doing over and over. But the longer they go in that, that cycle, it just starts spiraling out of control. By the time we get to the book of Judges, you're going to see that it's spiraled out of control. And they are enslaved. They're, they're going to be enslaved over and over and over. And that is what we do. Our cycles of sin will turn into slavery if they are not stopped. Now, friends, I have really good news. And the good news is this, that while we see Israel throughout its Old Test the Old Testament fall in these cycles and begin to spiral out of control, we see that God, being rich in mercy with which he loved us, he sent Christ Jesus to stop the cycle of sin. That, that Christ Jesus, in, in the Old Testament, they, they would have to uh, make animal sacrifices. They would have to make sin sacrifices to pay the price for their sin. And Jesus fulfilled it and did it once for all. And that, that when someone places their faith and trust in Christ, they are a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away, the new has gone um, that the Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I once lived in the flesh, in a sin cycle, I now live for the glory of God. And so, what we see is that what they did willfully in their sin cycles, what they would do willfully do, that a, a, someone in Christ, they stop the cycle. They realize what one is doing willfully, they have done wrongly. Therefore, they repent and they run back. And it is God's kindness that leads to repentance. I'm going to show you that in the scriptures. Verse 3. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war 
to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites and the Sidians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. And we see here that what, what Israel needed, they needed to do, where God spoke clearly, they needed to obey courageously. And the very things that they were warned about, they didn't do. I mean, one, one example of this, I mean, obviously, they, they, that we know from, from the conquest that they didn't go in and conquer the land the way in which they should have. There's their first sin. But the next sin, they're, they're, they're sexual sins. They're sins of their took wives that they should not have taken. That was the first step. And so they were unequally yoked after being warned not to be unequally yoked. Now, unequally yoked is a New Testament term, but the, the application comes. So the application is Israelites, uh, believers, should be wed and marry with other Israelite believers, right? So the New Testament principle is the New Testament Christian should only pursue, date, marry uh, a Christian, Shouldn't be unequally yoked. They should be yoked. And what we see over and over and over is that when it happens in Scripture, that it has caused the, the fall. It has caused loss of faith. And so and here's like really simply that the Lord gives us uh, the different things to obey. And here is just the example of a, a sexual ethic in a text that man, marriage is between a man and a woman. It is with sex is within the, the confines of marriage, not before marriage. It is after marriage. And that really the two should become one flesh. And that's when you should move in and live with each other. It's at, it's at that point. That's when you should become. And so if you just follow the commands of Scripture, you, you, you stay out of trouble. But when we don't, we end up needing discipline. We end up falling away. All these things happen. So here's the next big idea that I want to show you is that God disciplines those he loves. This is the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Verse 4. These very, uh, very simple things to be lived out that he gave uh, by Moses and this is going to be the discipline that it takes. Now, God disciplines those he loves and we get a very easy example of this in a parent and their child. What type of father does it take to not discipline his children. What father would let his child play out in the mi middle of a busy street and not teach that child, no, you don't get to do that. I'm going to discipline you. When you run out in the middle of the street, I'm going to take some sort of measure uh, to make sure that you don't do that dangerous thing. What type of father would just sit back and go, well, they're, they're two. They can make decisions for themselves. When I was little, my sister used to tell me to go play in the road. Over and over and over. She said, well, just go play in the street. Why did she say that? Because she hated me. That's why. 
truth was, I was probably deserving of her hate. I pestered her. I still pester her. I hated her back. I got saved. I stopped hating her. Hating her, all right? I mean, the Bible talks about that, right? Um, of, of course, a father who loves his child would stop his child from doing something dangerous, right? This is the same picture in Scripture. This is the same thing we're seeing is that God disciplines those he loves, not because he, like, get, like loves the discipline. He loves being this mean ruler. God. No, he disciplines because he loves us. Hebrews chapter 12 uh, the author of Hebrews explains this. Listen to verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hosti hostility against himself, so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggles against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And if you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so we're about to start into the Judges in the book of Judges. And we're going to see that this is the Lord disciplining Israel who struggle with God, who's been in this sin cycle, to bring them back to a place of repentance and worship of the Lord. It is God's grace and God's kindness. I want you to understand that. We're going to read of these judges and we're going to go, wow, how can we celebrate that? What we're celebrating is that God, in his kindness, is bringing Israel back to repentance. Those who, who have oppressed them and ruled over them wrongly, are being brought to justice, and Israel's being brought back to a place of worship. So, let's visit our, we're going we're to talk about three judges today, and so let's visit them there, uh, starting in chapter 3, verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot their Lord, their gods, and served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Kishon Rishatham, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Kishon Reshetham eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Kishon Reshetham, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Kishon Reshetham. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Here's my big idea. Is that when we are wicked, God is doubly good. And you're going to go like, wait, how did you get that from that text? Let me explain. Othniel, we see his name in scripture. We see him in the, in the book of Joshua. He's Caleb's son-in-law. 
Mary, Mary Caleb's daughter, Joshua and Caleb, they're the only two. They were the only two spies because of their faith were able to enter into the promised land. They were part of the conquest. So right through all of the conquest in the book of Joshua, know that Caleb is right beside him. He's a righteous man. He followed the Lord. He loved the Lord. Caleb was a good dude. As good, as good as anybody, right? We don't know much about his son other than that he was worthy of Caleb's blessing, taking his daughter, and he gave him some land. And the Lord raises uh, Othniel up uh, to defeat this, this king, Kishon Reshethem. Now, in Hebrew, when you see Kishon Reshethem, and you, you read about this, no, no one would have named, no mom named their child this. This is not a name that would have been given because this name literally means, this is what it means, is Kishon, and that's a place, the doubly wicked. So this king wasn't just a normal wicked king, he was a doubly wicked king. And so, man, when I read, when I read about ancient history and you read about um, uh, Belshazzar, some of the different, different um, times and periods, and you read about the different kings, when you come up to the New Testament, you read about a Nero, like you, you read about these guys and you see they're wicked. This one was doubly wicked. He was, he was a cruel, cruel man. And so... Um, the truth is, Israel, because they had ran to false gods who they'd done what God had not told them, they were, they were receiving the thing that they deserved by God's sovereign hand. Yes, it was their responsibility because they had sinned against God, but it was also God bringing about discipline on them that this doubly wicked king was there. But God raised up Othniel, uh, and, and he came and he killed the king, and we see that God is doubly good. That, that they received God's grace and God's mercy. And listen, there is really good news here. And that for you and I, when we are doubly wicked, God is doubly good. That there is no sin that you can commit that God cannot forgive. There is no thing that you can do where God will cast you out and not receive you back. There's nothing you can do in God's goodness and kindness that, that he won't forgive you of your sin. And not only forgive you... Forget your sin as far as the east is from west. To pardon you from that sin. God is doubly good. Let's meet our, let's meet our next judge. Verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Jerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, to the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. 
And Ehud came to him as he was sitting along in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. And now you know why I like teaching this to middle school boys. Right there. They love that story. I mean, this is like an incredible story to them. They're like, yes! Yes! The Bible's cool! I like the Bible! Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed, but when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there, lay their, there their Lord lay dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. And here's the big idea that I would show you is that God uses the weak things of the world. We actually see it over over and over in scripture, that God uses the weak things of the world. And, and by this text, here's the key to let us know. There's two keys that let us know that Ehud was weak. This judge was weak. He was an unlikely judge. One, he was left-handed. And there, there's two different schools of thought here. Uh, one thought was that he had a right withered hand. That you think about somebody that, that had some sort of disability in their right arm. And uh, they only had a, you know, a left arm. Rather than, there's the other school of thought that just said, you know, that we, they, people who were left-handed, who, who weren't right-handed dominant, they didn't make good soldiers, so they weren't going to be soldiers. Either way, uh, I think what we know, that the first way, like, helps prove my point. I think the second way, my point's still good, is that God uses the weak things of the world. He used this, this Ehud to take down a king. Now, um, we read this, first, first thing that goes, okay, this is, this is, Ehud is weak, but Eglon, he's fat, right? And we, we read fat as Americans, and often, like, we kind of judge that. When we think, when we read that, I mean, I think um, Boba, no, nah, what's the dude's name? Help me out. I always said Boba Fett, but Java the Hutt. That's what I think. I think, like, Java the Hutt from, from Star Wars. I almost said Star Trek. Let's get everybody mad at me today. My, my kids were in here. They, like, throw stuff at me if I got the two things confused. I don't know. Uh, that's who I think of, like, this huge, fat thing. For us, for us as Americans, we think about that. We don't think of that as, like, oh, that's strong. We, we think of somebody who's um, built, who's kind of jacked to be this strong ruler or leader. We would, in our heads, when we would put forth the ideal candidate to be a, a king of a a country like that, we would think of somebody who's a warrior. But for most of history, um, including that time, and even now in certain places, um, 
being fat, it's symbolic of money. It's symbolic of wealth and power. And so uh, the, when you're large like that, it's saying, hey, uh, you know, this, this king, he gets to eat all that he wants. He gets to eat all that he wants. He's got money. Um, several years ago, uh, beginning of COVID, AJ and I were, were in India. And in India, if, you've, if you know this, you've been in India, often the women wear these tops that show from here to here, like most teenage girls uh, around right now. And, and what they, they wear these tops, and the bigger they are, the more likely they are to wear the tops. And they actually count rolls. And the more rolls you have, the more wealth you have. It's seen as a, it's seen as a thing in, in society to say this is prominence, this is money. And so this is what we would need to, need to know, that this was true for him. This is a king, this is a wealthy, wealthy king who's taken money, from, he's, ta- he's taken money, he's taken food, food is probably his idol. And that's probably the tribute that they would have brought. They probably would have brought grain offerings and whatever. It's the very thing that he used to kill him. So, so first you go, okay, he's a king, and this guy has a disability. Now, I would just show you that Ehud was crafty. Even though, even though this king probably thought he wasn't going to be outsmarted, he, he, it was brilliant. This is one man, not a bunch, right? And so he brings, and he's got these guys helping bring the tribute with him. He's got his, his knife hid. He brings, and he lays down the tribute with all of his guys. He lays it down. He turns, and he leaves. And he takes his guys with him. And when they, when they get out to the, what would be the edge of the city, where the idols were, he says, oh, hey, guys, you guys go on. I forgot something. I need to go back. And then he turns, and he goes back by himself. And he's already, at this point, earned Eglon's trust because he's laid down the tribute. And he goes, and he says, I have a secret, and it's a message from God. And so there he goes. He gets in. He earns his trust. He says, a message of God. He stands up. He puts the knife in. He, leaves, he, you know, he, he kills them. He's crafty because when he leaves, he locks the door. And apparently, when, the, when those guards come back to do them, they actually do the right thing. They think he's in the bathroom. So they let him use the bathroom in peace. That's the right thing. Listen to me, kids in the room. There's actually no little kids in this room, I don't think. The first service was a bunch of little kids. And I, like, I, I tried to do the parents a solid. I was like, listen... When your parents are in the bathroom, let them use the bathroom. No fingers under the doors. No, can I have a snack? No, can I watch TV? Like, that's the way to know and not get it. Let them go in peace. We like to go in peace. So after a point of embarrassment, they, they bust open the door. They go in, and they found that he's dead. But it's too late because Ehud has made an escape. He has blown the trumpet, shouting that the king is dead. And they, they together, the people no longer having a leader, he becomes their leader, uh, the Israelites' leader, and they go down and they wage war. Now, it says that they killed 10,000 men and that none escaped. But there's one more clue. There's one more clue I think helps prove the point that we see throughout the Bible is that God uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. It says at that time they killed about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. I think that's showing us just another picture that that's not what Ehud was. Uh, he, he was not a strong, able-bodied man. He was a weak thing that God chose and used to deliver the people of Israel. God used him for God's glory, but also the good of their people and his kindness. 
Let's visit our next judge. Verse 31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. And that's it. That's what we know. He used an ox goad. Now, don't Google ox goad. I'll tell you what it is. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a small stick with essentially a, a, a little kind of hook on the end. And it was used to move the ox along, either to, to push them forward or to pull them back. That's all it was. Small stick with kind of a hook on the end. And he used that to kill 600 Philistines. That's pretty epic, right? We get, we, get, we get these stories from like David and Goliath and the, the sling, and right, we know all the details. We don't know the details here. We just know that he did it. We don't know how he did it. So here's my next big idea, is that God works through mystery that he may receive the glory. There's no little kid going to come home from school, or come home from uh, Sunday school, or come home from church and be like, oh, when I grow up, I want to be like Shamgar. That's not happening. You don't know who Shamgar is. Because he's there and he's gone, but yet we see him to be a great deliverer and a judge of Israel. And so God uses the mystery that he may receive the glory. It's woven throughout scripture mystery. Things, things that happen and we see it happen without explanation. And we don't know what the men did, but we know that God worked for the good of his people, but also for his glory. I have a couple challenges regarding this point. The first is that you would look to the mystery that's happened to you in your life and see it by faith, knowing that God has moved and worked, and that your faith would increase and you would trust God more. There have been times where you have had things that happen and you that, that made you scratch your head. Why did that happen? Look for, the, look for the Lord doing the thing that's bringing him glory and you good. There's going to be encounters you've happened with people that were, maybe it was beside them on an airplane or maybe it was that you had a flat tire and someone came to your rescue and maybe it was a, a glimpse of somebody that when you were in rebellion of your sin, it was a, a, um, a time where you met somebody that in just a brief moment, they pointed you to the goodness of the Lord. That there are things that God is doing that are mysterious to us, that his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that he is working even when we don't know it and we can't see it and we can't explain it. Just trust that God is good. The second is this, is let's be a people of mystery. Let's be a people who don't need our name known, who aren't trying to make our name or our church brand expand or, or whatever else, that we're just willing to serve the Lord and die. And we're not worried about our name being known, we're not worried about fame, that we're just a blot in history, that we're going, we're here, we love the Lord, we're going to serve the Lord, and we're going to go be with the Lord when we die. And that's what we want. And so let's embrace the mystery of the ways in which God works. Let's be a people who see God's kindness and see how it leads to repentance, and let's be a people who are quick to repent. That aren't willfully willing to, to fall into sin, but run from sin and run to God. Father, we love you and we praise you for your word. We praise you that even these stories that just seem so wild sometimes, that seem somewhat 
even, even weird details that you're like, why would you put that in a holy book? That, Lord, these, these stories can, can be used for our sanctification, for, for our growth, for our good. God, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that we would see your glory in it all. That we would see that you are a good, big, mighty, powerful God, full of kindness. That though we deserve wrath because we are so often doubly wicked. That you pour out your grace upon us. Your unmerited favor. That while we were sinners, you sent Christ Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And Lord, that, that we would believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. That we would place our faith and trust not in our own works, not in the works of man, but in the works of Jesus and Jesus alone. That we would see that Jesus is the only good, right judge and Savior. That we wouldn't open up your book and try to judge you by it, God, but we would humbly surrender ourselves to you. That we would cry out guilty. And realize that through Jesus we're not guilty anymore. That there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Lord, let us live out our faith. Let us live out the wonder, wonderful mysteries that we see in Scripture. But also the wonderful mysteries that you work in our lives from day to day. Lord, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing a song of response.